Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Mark. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Kenny, thank you for reading, and happy birthday to you. We did not sing to you beforehand, let you get some distance from the stage to announce that. Morning, everyone. Uh, None of my jokes landed last service, and I was talking to... A staff member about that, and she reminded me, well, we're five days into Lent, so maybe people are caffeine-free and Instagram-free, and they're not really in the mood for laughing, but we'll see if I can do a little bit better this time. Do y'all want to know my uneducated guess about Mark? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I think Mark was probably a jock. Because in comparison to the other gospel authors, they come, up with, come off with vibes that feel a little bit like history nerds. So you have Matthew, who shows us the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham, and then Luke one-ups him, and he goes back to Adam, and then John outdoes them both, and he goes back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was the word. And Mark is like, I don't have time for any of this. I'm just going to put Jesus in the action. And what Mark does is he gives us two characteristics, two titles of Jesus. He says he's the Son of God and the Messiah, and then he just places us in his baptism and wilderness testing. And there could be a way that we view this where we could say Mark is uninterested in history. He doesn't know the genealogy that came before, but I think probably a better way for us to look at how Mark has set up his gospel is each gospel author roots Jesus in an already existing narrative. So when Matthew is linking him to the genealogy of Abraham, he's trying to show us, hey, Jesus is fulfilling something that was began in Abraham. Or when Luke brings us back to Adam, he's putting forward, hey, Jesus is the new Adam. 
And when Mark is putting us in the story, he feels like the things that we need to know are Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Messiah, and let's get to the action. Let me show you how these things are true. And Mark is demonstrating in his portrayal of Jesus how he fulfills these titles. So we as good readers of the text, we should be coming to the text asking a question of how does Jesus' initial moments in his baptism and in his temptation reveal to us his authenticity as the Son of God and as the Messiah? And it's an appropriate place for us to be considering this because we're here on the first Sunday of Lent and we are looking across 40 days of wilderness out to Easter Sunday. And it's kind of a funny season of the church calendar because there's a sense in which what we are doing during the season of Lent is we are playing dress up with the story of Jesus. We are putting on some of his life, we're feeling it in ourselves in order that we might be changed by it. So we look at Jesus's 40-day temptation in the wilderness and we say, I'm going to model myself after that in hopes that I would become more like him. And when we're thinking about the role of Lent in the Christian life, Christians for a long time have looked forward to the feasting of Easter and they viewed Lent as a season of preparation. And they prepare by fasting in order that they would take seriously this dual command issued by John the Baptist and by Jesus that we would repent and believe. That we would repent and believe the gospel. What they want, what the church wants in having this preparatory season is that we wouldn't just think of Jesus as, of course he's my savior. Or we wouldn't think of faith in Jesus as merely intellectual assent, right? James says that the demons believe. So we want a belief that goes beyond mere assent. We want a belief that is rooted in a whole life transformation, in repentance. That's what we're putting on in this narrative. But what's funny to me about this story is, as much as we're playing dress up with the story of Jesus, trying on his story for ourselves, we see Jesus is actually doing that with us. So Jesus begins his ministry from a place of trying on our story by putting our baptism on himself because you all know this, baptism is a symbol of repentance. And if there's ever been any person who did not need to put on a symbol of repentance, it is Jesus. Which ought to beg the question for us as we come to the text this morning, why is Mark, as he declares, this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah, why is the first thing that he's doing repenting publicly. What business does Jesus have with this being how he kicks off his public ministry? And I think part of the confusion here is that we can be a little bit inoculated to the symbol of baptism. So we read this story and we read John the Baptist as a title, and in our heads we think like, yep, there's John the Baptist, and I also know John the Methodist, and there's John the Presbyterian. We filter this through a denominational lens That is not what is in mind with the original hearers of this text. When they're thinking about John the Baptist, they're thinking John the baptizer. And baptism is a word that we have stolen directly from the Greek. So this Greek word, baptizo, which means to plunge something or to immerse something. I actually found a reference to baptizo outside the Bible that was in a Greek recipe for pickles. So you, you baptizo the cucumbers in the vinegar. That's how they are hearing this. So when they are thinking of John the Baptist, what they're hearing in their minds is John the Immerser, which would be a sweet name for a pro wrestler. <laughs> John the Immerser, that is a good name. I don't really care about your Enneagram number, but I do want to know what your pro wrestler name would be. 
I think that would tell a lot about a person. So John, he's pictured as this, as this wild man in the wilderness. He's immersing people, which is a symbol in their contemporary day and age for people who were converting from whatever pagan religion they may have followed into Judaism to follow Israel's God. And at a very surface level, what this symbol suggested was a ritual purification. That by entering water, by being immersed into water and being raised out, I would be casting off a former identity and being purified in the eyes of Israel's God. But the symbol actually extends much deeper than that. When we're thinking about the symbol of water in the Old Testament, water is a symbol of movement from death to life in the story of the people of God. Time and again, we see God's people progress from death to life in deliverance through water. So you could think back to the creation narrative, where the earth is pictured as without form and void, and the waters hover over the face of the deep. And God speaks, and by his breath, these waters are driven back and land emerges so that life may begin. Or we could think about Noah, who in a kind of decreation event, as God allows judgment to come forward and these chaotic floodwaters come back, Noah is preserved as a remnant in the ark brought through to safety on the other side. Or you could think about Israel, who is delivered out of bondage in Egypt, and they cross through the Red Sea, and the sea becomes the means of judgment that God executes on the pursuing army of the Egyptians, swallowing them up as his people are led to safety. Or you could think about Israel, who enters the promised land by crossing the Jordan, the very place where John the Immerser has fixed himself for this symbol of repentance. Say, we are going to cross into this promised land and we will function as a nation of priests, a people of God's own possession, and our job is to mediate the presence of God to the world, that we are to bring him nearer, we are to build his kingdom. And in all of these examples, what we see is water is a means of the deliverance of God's people, but it's not just about deliverance. In each occasion of deliverance, what we see is through the passage of waters, from death, graciously delivered into life, it's not just about being delivered from something, but on the other side, the people receive new identity. God confirms and confers a new identity for those who have passed from death to life. So you think about Noah, who through the ark is preserved, and on the other side, what God does is he makes a covenant with him. He reinstates the purposes that he originated in Adam. Or you think about Israel, who's marched out into the wilderness, and as they're there, they receive the law from the Lord at Sinai, and they're called to be a set-apart people. Or you think about them entering the promised land. Again, these are my people. They will carry on my legacy. In all of these places, this passage through water from death to life suggests not just I've been saved from something, but I've been called into a new life. And this is what is being put on in John's ministry of immersion. It's a way in which we embrace, I too want to pass from death to life. I too want transformation. And all of these symbols together, they actually point forward to something beyond baptism. John mentions it in the passage that we just read that we're longing not just for an external symbol, but really what we need is an internal transformation that only God can bring about. And John, looking forward at it, Jesus says, I'm baptizing you with water, I'm immersing you in water, but one is coming after me who will immerse you into the Holy Spirit, who will plunge you into the very life of God. And in doing that, you will be transformed from the inside out. You will be made a new creation. This is the hope that we're all longing for. And Ezekiel prophesies about this moment, this new covenant in chapter 37. He writes, Then he said to me, 
prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. This is the hope of baptism, that our graves would be opened, we would be brought up. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. This is the hope that Israel is looking forward to. A day when God will pour out his very breath, his very spirit on us and allow us to go from a pile of dry bones to an enlivened people in order that we might carry out the purposes of God. And this is why the whole nation seemingly has come out to see and to participate in John's baptism. They want transformation. They want to be changed. But there's a conflict in the backdrop of what's going on here. So the Pharisees are opposed to the ministry of John the Immerser. And the reason they are opposed is, yeah, okay, it may be fine for a Greek person to convert to Judaism through the symbol of repentance, but when you apply it to an ethnic Jew in the minds of the Pharisees, they're thinking they don't need that repentance. They're already a child of Abraham. What business do they have repenting? It's almost offensive to their sensibilities of how they understand being the people of God. And the great irony in our text for today is if there's anybody who has a right to be offended about baptism, it's not the Pharisees, it's Jesus. Baptism is a symbol of repentance, moving from death to life. And if there's ever been a person who did not need to participate in this symbol, it is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Messiah. And yet, here we find Jesus debasing himself humbling himself, taking on a symbol that is not his to take on. Why is he doing this? Why is this Mark's first stop in portraying him as the Messiah? Because if I'm thinking about what it means to be the Messiah, what it means to be a savior, and I'm looking at the state of this world, I might think of some different things that I would expect the Messiah to do as his first order of business. So maybe I'm thinking I need to be saved from the powers and systems and oppressive forces of this world. If I'm in John's day and age, I'm thinking about I need Rome to be overturned so that the people of God will no longer be oppressed. If that's my vision of what the Messiah will deliver me from, then baptism has no role in that. Or maybe I could think about this as, you know what Israel needs, you know what the people of God need, we need a new prophetic voice. We need somebody who's going to portray for us how we ought to live as the people of God. I need to know how to live my best life now, and so I need somebody who's going to come and show me this is the better way. But if that's the case, Jesus doesn't need to participate in baptism, he could just begin instructing us. Or maybe I have that hope of Ezekiel 37, God, I recognize I'm broken, and I need transformation. Will you pour out your Holy Spirit upon me? And even then, 
why does Jesus need to be baptized? Why couldn't he just begin with a ministry of pouring out the Holy Spirit? It seems like an extraneous step in the process. And Jesus does do all of those things. He does overturn the power of Rome. He does offer us a better way to live. He does offer transformation. But his messianic mission wraps all of those things into a bigger picture. And that's that Jesus in his immersion, what he's showing us is that he has come to take our place. Where we ought to stand in these baptismal waters where we ought to enter the Jordan to confess our need to God, Jesus has come and stood in our place because he will ultimately take our place on the cross. Jesus is associating himself with us in order that we might be found in him. And Mark is wanting us to see that as he's using this term Messiah, as he's using this term Son of God, it only makes sense as Jesus has identified himself with us. And Mark, as he's quoting from Isaiah, he's calling back to the Old Testament a series of categories for this Jewish people that they would have readily understood. So one of those categories is that Israel, corporately, was understood as the Son of God. Many passages in the Old Testament where God talks about his people as his Son in a singular, even though he's referring to them in the plural. So Hosea 11 is one example of this. Hosea writes, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So the singular applied to the plural. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the balls and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? That he would treat us like a child, bringing us towards his face, close to his cheek, in order that he might feed us? That is God's affection towards his son, Israel. So when we're hearing son here, I don't want you to hear gendered language. When we're thinking about a corporate usage of the son of God, Israel, this nation, I want you to hear the son is the person who's participating in the family business. So for the nation of Israel, they would have thought about heredity, they would have thought about passing down the family trade to the son, where property goes, it's where my vocation goes next. But when we're thinking about it in this corporate identity, we're talking about the people of God, they will be the ones to participate in this family business of bringing God's kingdom to the world. So Mark, as he's invoking Isaiah and as he's introducing this title, the Son of God, and as we see Jesus in the Jordan, what we see is he's taking on this corporate mantle, but that's not all that's happening because there's another category in the Old Testament as we think about the Son of God where one individual from this corporate group emerges as a mediator who acts on behalf of the people. We could think about this with the kings. We could think about this with the prophets. But one place where this is especially developed is in Isaiah and his motif of what we call the suffering servant. And I want you to hear two texts where we're talking about an individual who stands on behalf of the people. So this is from Isaiah 42. It says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So this is the messianic hope, Right? Our Messiah would come, he would establish justice for everyone. And what we just heard there 
is that the way Isaiah is conceiving of this figure is the way Mark is portraying him. He's the one who is beloved and he's the one who has received the Spirit. Isn't this what we see of Jesus at his baptism? Mark wants us to see Jesus is this suffering servant. He's the same person. Or we could look at Isaiah 53. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of this is in Mark's mind as he thinks about what does it mean for Jesus to be Son of God and Messiah. Jesus, in his baptism, what he is conferring upon us is, hey, I am standing in your place. I am taking on your identity in order that you might be delivered. Mark wants us to see how these things weave together in order that Jesus might function as a substitute. So that's Jesus' baptism. He's associating himself with us that we might be associated with him. And let's pause here. I want you to pretend like you don't know where the narrative goes next. So I want you thinking, if we've just had a moment in which Jesus has been publicly declared to be God's beloved son and the spirit has descended upon him, what would we expect the next thing to be? John has been engaging in a preparatory ministry. What I would expect in this moment is Jesus rolls out of the Jordan and he grabs the mic from John and he says, that's right, John, that's why I'd like to tell you about the Holy Spirit. Capitalize on some momentum here that's been built up. But that's not what Jesus does. At this moment in which it seems like the time is ripe for him to activate his public ministry, he retreats for 40 days, which seems kind of backwards. What is it that Jesus is accomplishing in moving out to the wilderness? It almost feels to me like what we see is God says to Jesus, son, I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. And that's why I'm kicking you out of the house. Good luck out there. Like, what's happening? This feels like whiplash. And I do want us to see Mark 1.12, it was the Holy Spirit who sent Jesus out into the wilderness. This isn't a happenstance thing. It isn't Jesus got his order wrong. The Holy Spirit sends him there. And maybe it would be helpful for us to spend a moment considering the role of the wilderness in the Hebrew imagination. And the good news is it doesn't take a lot of imagination. It's a desert. It's a place of lack of privation, of dependence and need. So Jesus is driven out to this place of lack, of privation. But that's not the only thing that the wilderness suggests in the mind of these people. The wilderness is also, ironically, the place that God often chooses to meet with his people. Which for me, there's kind of this sense of, God, couldn't we just meet in bed or something? Like, do I have to go out to the wilderness? for us to facilitate a meeting here. But time and again, this is the place where God meets with his people. You could think about the story of Hagar fleeing Abraham and Sarah. She goes to the desert and God finds her there. Or you could think about Abraham, who on a desolate mountaintop, as he's been asked to sacrifice Isaac, is interceded by the Lord with a ram. Or you could think about Jacob, who wrestles an angel. Or you could think about Moses, both the first and second time he goes to the wilderness. The first time for killing someone, and the second time as he's leading God's people out, God meets with him there. 
Or you could think about our text from last week that John preached on, Elijah fleeing to the wilderness and God finds him there. God finds us in our wilderness wanderings. And this is one of those places where it is appropriate for you to think, where have I walked in the wilderness? Or where am I walking in the wilderness? And for some of us, that is a moment in time, and for others of us, it's a season of time. But where have I been drawn into the wilderness, into this place of unique dependence upon, reliance on God? What does that look like for me? And I do just want to say, as we're considering this text with Jesus as he's being tested in the wilderness, I think sometimes we may have a background assumption where we kind of turn up Jesus' divinity and turn down his humanity. And maybe we think when Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, it's kind of like, well, yeah, he could do that because he's God. It's not a big deal. But this was a big deal for Jesus. That's why he had to be ministered to by angels. He's fully human and fully God. Jesus walked through a test, an ordeal. And so it's appropriate for us to think about our tests and ordeals. And I want to put before us a scripture here from Deuteronomy 8. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So the function of this wilderness place, it's not just a meeting place with God, it's a place in which our faith is tested, it's proved, it's refined. And Our English Bibles may be a little bit unhelpful here. You may have a header over this section in your Bible that reads something like the temptation of Jesus, or that may be the word that's used as he's in the wilderness with Satan. But that word temptation actually can be rendered test, like it's being used here in Deuteronomy 8. And I think that's a more appropriate usage for what's going on here. Jesus being driven into the wilderness is an occasion for his faith and faithfulness to be tested, to be proven genuine, to be shown to be sufficient. He is proving that he is, in fact, the authoritative Messiah, the one who can overcome Satan in the wilderness. And maybe I can give us an illustration of this concept. So, quirky thing about us is that we do backyard composting. And some of you may be thinking, at this point, it's no longer quirky. We get it that you do weird things with your animals and backyard and stuff. We have backyard chickens and all that. And so we compost, and we put food scraps in there. We put chicken poop in there. And it's amazing to see how fast this stuff breaks down. But knowing what I know about what I've put into my compost, there's always this moment of hesitancy where I think, should I put this on my plants? Like, is it ready? Is it dirt now? Which in the biz they call cooked. Is your compost cooked? And so the way you find out if your compost is cooked is you take some into a Ziploc baggie and you put it on your kitchen counter and you let it sit for a few days or a week. And when it sat there for a while, you open the Ziploc bag and you take a sniff. And if it smells like poo, it's not compost. (laughs) You test it. You test to see what it's made of. And the Lord drawing us out into the wilderness tests us. It's an opportunity for us to take a sniff on our faith. (laughs) Truly. And say, what is this made of? And I mean, it sounds silly, but if you can call to your mind 
whatever is in your mind as you think about your wilderness season, past or present, or maybe an anticipated future wilderness. You can think about how that is a place in which you are being examined to say, what is my faith made of? Will I, like Israel, long to go back to the gods of Egypt, or will I learn in a new way to rely upon God? And that's the thing that's really interesting about the test. It's not just a moment of examination. It's not just a moment of seeing what I'm made of. It also often becomes the mechanism, the means, that God uses to further our faith. It becomes the refining fire that burns away the other things so that we are drawn into a place of finally learning to rely on God when we didn't want to, when we were in a more comfortable position. God facilitates that meeting in the wilderness because he wants to produce something in us. He wants to form something in us, to make something in us. And Deuteronomy 8 goes on in verse 5, it says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And again, I want you to think the church, as the son of God in this corporate sense, is in line to inherit, so to speak, the family business. We are meant to progress to further the kingdom that God is bringing over and against the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the one who Jesus does battle with in the wilderness. And what the text is telling us is that God takes legitimate children and he trains them. He disciplines them. He teaches them how to behave. And oftentimes that discipline, that correction, that instruction, that reproof comes from us being drawn out to a place in the wilderness in order that we would learn to rely on him in a way that we otherwise wouldn't. And this is what's going on with Jesus. Jesus in the wilderness, it's not a 40-day silent retreat to get his head on straight before he does his public ministry. It is him demonstrating mastery over Satan so that when he turns around and continues his public ministry and he's casting out demons and he's healing the sick, he has proven that he is in fact Lord over this world and the kingdom that he's bringing stands in opposition to the one that is here at present. Jesus in his baptism says, I am in your place, and Jesus in the wilderness testing says, I am the one who can deliver you. Mark is showing us he is both Messiah and Son of God. So we need to ask a question, how do I respond to this? Because again, we're here on the first Sunday of Lent. We are kind of modeling ourselves after a 40-day temptation, testing, what do we do? So th this is one line of thinking I want to say. And if you are fasting from something over Lent, I want you thinking about how can I imitate Jesus? But another line of thinking I want for us is we will all go through wilderness seasons whether or not they were voluntary. In fact, the Lenten fast feels very different to me than those wildernesses that God calls us to walk through, that the Spirit drives us into. How can we learn from Jesus in that place? And I want you, church, to see three things this morning. The first is that your baptism precedes any wilderness wanderings. Jesus begins from a place, emerging from the waters, in which God delights in him. You are my beloved son, and it's before he has proven anything. It's before he's done anything, before he has been tested, he is declared beloved. And if you are in Christ, that is true of you. If you come into the season of Lent thinking that God's declaration of love for you rests on the other side of the wilderness, 
you will spend it trying to earn God's love, which you cannot do. You cannot do it because you don't have the strength and you cannot do it because it's already been given. God delights in you. He delights in you before you ever pass through the wilderness and so you can rest in that. The second thing I want you to hear is that the wilderness, again, is often a place of meeting. Which again, it's like, why? (laughs) Why does it have to be that? And I'm reminded of, there's this really cheesy comic I saw where it's, Jesus standing on a beach with another person and they're asking Jesus, how did we get here? And they're looking back and seeing there's only one set of footprints and Jesus is like, I carried you. And then there's a panel where no one says anything. And then the next panel, the person says to Jesus, what are those lines in the sand over there? And he says, well, that's where I had to drag you for a while. (laughs) (laughs) And that's often us. That's often us. To say it really frankly, I would prefer comfort to being refined. I would prefer ease to Jesus drawing me into further conformity with him. And God, in his mercy, in his kindness, because he has invited us to participate in the family business, draws me into the wilderness, draws me into a place where I have no other option but to learn to rely upon him. And I can't help but think of Jacob wrestling the angel. Of This is a moment in which God's drawing me out. It may leave me with a limp, but it will also give me a new identity. Israel, one who strives with God. That is the shape of our relationship with God as he leads us into the wilderness. And this is a hard thing because I think about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus prays, lead them not into temptation or lead us not into temptation. Same word as test. Lead us not into the test but deliver us from evil. No one desires this testing in and of itself, but it will be part of our Christian life. It will be part of how God refines and matures us. So we have to think about the wilderness as a place of meeting or it'll be too much. The last thing I want you to hear this morning, church. Yes. Jesus has conquered where we may fail. And there's a mysterious tension here. So, It is good and it is right to spend this season of Lent, 40 days of preparation and fasting for Easter, but we must do it in recognition that we are not Jesus. The the role of Lent is not that I would set up my own personal one-on-one showdown with Satan for the next 40 days, because I will not walk out of that like Jesus did, because I'm not Jesus. So there's imitation. We are called to imitate our master. That's a good and right thing. And yet we can rest in imitating him to recognize when I fail in the wilderness, when I'm tried and I'm found to be still cooking, still in process, that's okay. Because Jesus, who associated himself with me, who became like me, did pass the wilderness test. He was sufficient. And I can rest in him So we can enter the season of Lent recognizing the value of preparation without trying to become Jesus for ourselves because we cannot measure up. But the good news, church, is that we don't have to. Grace is freely offered to us. And I'm going to close by just praying over us the words of Paul in Romans 6. Romans 6 is a passage where Paul is meditating on this mysterious reality of baptism, that what is true of Christ has been made true of us because he became like us, and by faith we can be adopted into him. So I want you to hear this as a prayer 
over you. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Church, this is the invitation for us. You can count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God because Jesus has become like us. He has taken our place. He has substituted himself for us in order that we might be found in him. And he has immersed us, plunged us into the very life of God. And that is good news. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for becoming associated with us for standing in those baptismal waters and participating in the story of a movement from death to life. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a gift who is freely offered to all who would believe that we might experience transformation in life with you, God. God, I pray for this congregation. I know that there are many in this room who are in a season of wilderness right now. And it's not something that we desire the wilderness is not often good in and of itself, and yet in your kindness, God, you meet us there. You prove us to be your children. So Lord, I pray for a perspective that acknowledges the purpose of the wilderness. But God, more than that, for myself and for the people in here, I pray for an abiding rest, both in our baptismal identity in Jesus and in seeing him triumph in the wilderness. Will we be able to rest because of what he has done for us, even when we are in the wilderness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.